So this month's episode is about Ho Chi Minh. Ho Chi Minh died 50 years ago, and I'm sure this September there will be huge celebrations in Vietnam to mark this event, as Ho Chi Minh is now something of a deity in Vietnam. As father of the nation, he, not Marx, is the official source of ideological wisdom in communist Vietnam, and there are religious shrines set up to him all over Vietnam. In an age where Marx is largely vilified and discredited, as are the iconic 20th century communist leaders Lenin, Stalin and Mao, Ho Chi Minh's legacy not only endures, but is strengthening in his homeland. Ho Chi Minh is a great figure of the 20th century, despite coming from a relatively smaller nation that was under colonial occupation for most of the century. This is because he was on the front line of the two struggles that dominated that century the struggle between communism and capitalism, and the struggle between imperialist empires and the colonies under their domination. Ho Chi Minh was the leader of the armies that defeated first the Japanese occupation forces in World War II, then the French colonial army, and finally the US army. While the US army withdrew from Vietnam after Ho Chi Minh's death, the victory was attributed to him as the father of the nation and it was songs dedicated to him that the army was singing as they marched into Saigon. Ho Chi Minh was far from a straightforward Marxist revolutionary. In fact, there is nothing very straightforward about Ho Chi Minh at all. He had several identities during his adult life and officially it had been announced in the news that he had died as Nguyen Ai Quoc in 1932 after being arrested by the British in Hong Kong and contracted an illness in prison, only then to reappear in 1942 as Ho Chi Minh at the head of the Vietnamese resistance to the Japanese occupation. Ho Chi Minh adopted the name Nguyen Ai Quoc a hundred years ago when at the age of 29 he arrived at the Paris Peace Conference taking the job of a busboy at the restaurant of the Ritz Hotel. Nguyen was already a committed nationalist by the time he arrived in Paris and certainly was sympathetic to the causes of the downtrodden and to socialist ideas. But it was only after his experiences in Paris a hundred years ago that he decided to commit to the communist path to overthrowing the colonial oppression in his own country. So let's transport ourselves back a hundred years for episode nine of the year, June 1919, Denied a Lifetime. The man who stands on top of a hill with his mouth open waits a lifetime for a roast duck to fall in. Confucius. Nguyen Tat Than was probably the only qualified pastry chef in all of Paris who was working in the menial position of a busboy. It wasn't that his experience, gained in London, was looked down on here in Paris. It was a conscious choice to allow him to be close to the action of the Paris Peace Conference. The restaurant of the Ritz Hotel was one of the places that the great and the good continued on the intriguing and the debates of the morning or afternoon sessions. On any given day, as he was clearing away the plates, he could be hearing about how the Branat was never going to be given to Romania, or how it had come to light that Italy had a secret agreement assuring that they would be given a port in the Adriatic. Nguyen's journey to this hub of intrigue had started a long time ago in a faraway country, but it seemed always that it would inevitably lead him to Paris. He just hadn't imagined in 1911, 
as a teenage boy leaving Vietnam that it would take him seven years and that when he arrived in Paris after seeing the world that the whole world would be in Paris too and that they would be there to break empires apart, create new nations, bring some countries down, elevate others. Given that the overriding passion of Nguyen was the plight of his own country, it seemed destiny that he should arrive at his destination at this time in history. It was injustice and brutality that had started his journey. His father, a learned scholar and also a powerful civil servant, had arrested and had whipped a corrupt, tyrannical local landlord. The landlord had powerful friends who used their influence to get himself released, sack Nguyen's father and bar him from future office, which did not bode well for the prospects of his youngest and brightest son. His father's disgrace left Nguyen little scope in his region, so he had travelled throughout Vietnam, but felt he needed to get out into the wider world. So when he was offered a job as a coal boy on a steamer headed for Europe, he jumped at the opportunity. Thus began Nguyen's four years of life at sea, during which time he graduated from coal boy to the position of ship's cook. He was efficient as a chef and freed his mind up and all his spare time for studying the world. He was studying how different peoples lived, especially the different peoples of the world that, like his own, weren't masters of their own destiny. He spent time in Ceylon, India, Singapore, the whole of the Middle East and North Africa. He was fascinated to observe the differences resulting from the different systems imposed on different colonial people by different colonial occupiers. The British were less controlling than the French, but never mistake their laissez-faire approach for weakness. At the merest sniff of an uprising, the gunboats would be there in force. The Portuguese failed to deliver even a semblance of educational infrastructure for their colonised peoples, but they didn't seem to inflict the racial propaganda on their subjects that lay at the heart of all other European colonial regimes. But all of them had one thing in common. They were all, bar none, less brutal than the colonial rule his people were subjected to at the hands of the French. Nguyen stopped his wandering for a while in New York, he was blown away by the scale of the place and thought it a place he needed to explore more, with its futuristic feel, full of factories, highways and buildings reaching towards the stars. Yet his nose for injustice soon found out the colonial underbelly to this land of professed freedom. He attended lectures by radical black activists and listened with interest to the new music coming out of Harlem. But New York, despite being another world, was also populated by the familiar. There were too many opportunities in this melting pot to speak in Vietnamese and French, and Nguyen believed that to fill his destiny, which was vaguely starting to take shape in his mind, it was imperative that he speak English fluently. So he left New York for London. In London, after a winter of shoveling snow, hard work for a skinny young man from the tropics, he landed himself a job as a pastry chef in one of London's elite hotels. For the first time in the seven years of his travels, Nguyen was living above the breadline. Comfort, however, was never a priority for him. What good was personal material comfort if he had to live with the knowledge of the oppression of his own people? And the people responsible for that oppression were the French. So finally, it was time for Nguyen Tat Than to move to the heart that pumped the blood to the hand that crushed his people. It was time to go to Paris. Nguyen arrived in Paris one month before the armistice. He observed the raucous celebrations and wondered when his own countrymen would get to celebrate independence. 
he quickly became sucked into the world of Parisian radical politics and soon gained recognition as a speaker at these events. He was rather a novelty, as he was often the only colonised person in the room. Lenin's theory of imperialism, being the final stage of capitalism, was seeping into the discourse of the French left, even if they were suspicious of the new regime in Russia. The radical left had always opposed the French Empire, but actually having someone from the colonies get up and speak at their gatherings was new. And it turned out that this intensely quiet young man that they had taken under their wing transformed when he took to the platform. While still quietly spoken, his passionate and emotive articulacy reduced gatherings prone to being noisy and fidgeting to utter silence as they strained to hear every word that Nguyen had to say about the urgent need for emancipation in the colonies. Nguyen had the ability to reduce whole audiences to tears with his stories of how the French army ruled his country. No small feat considering it was an audience numbed to violence by the scale of slaughter perpetrated barely 60 kilometres from the smoke-filled cafes they were meeting in. Nguyen had a way of shocking them back to their humanity with his quietly delivered tales of French soldiers. One story he often relayed was of two French soldiers who barged into a farmstead demanding brandy and when it wasn't forthcoming, they barbecued the man of the house alive on his own fire while repeatedly raping his wife and baby daughter as he died screaming. In a world dominated by propaganda of the baby-eating Hun barbarians, Nguyen could make the French men and women in front of him question who the bad guys were and remind them that while it was the system which enslaved them all, the system was enslaving some peoples much more brutally than it was others. As the Paris Peace Conference got underway, representatives from areas of the world that were either protectorates or close to being so, such as China, the Middle East, Korea, Thailand and South America, descended on Paris. Even some fully-fledged colonies such as India had representatives and voting rights at the conference. Nguyen's country and the other colonies of the French were conspicuous in their absence, despite the fact that these peoples had fought and over a quarter of a million of them had died in the war on behalf of the victors. At this time, Nguyen decided to move on from the name his father had given him when he was 10 years old. Nguyen Tat Than meant Nguyen the Accomplished and was given to him in light of his excellent record at school. Now Nguyen felt his name should reflect his life's mission, so he changed his name to Nguyen Ai Kwok, Nguyen the Patriot. Nguyen the Patriot's first task was to deliver an appeal on behalf of his countrymen for his country's freedom to the self-proclaimed leader of the free world, President Woodrow Wilson. Kwok had read the American Constitution and also thoroughly studied Wilson's 14 points. After his 14-hour shifts at the Hotel Ritz, Kwok worked long into the night, composing in English his appeal to the American president entitled The Eight Claims of the Annamite People which was intentionally closely modelled on the American Declaration of Independence and referenced the spirit and wording of Wilson's own speeches on people's right to self-determination. After many revisions, he considered it presentable. Quok proceeded to print up many copies of the eight claims of the Annamite people and proceeded to try and personally deliver it to the president. He was turned away at the door to the Hotel de Crillon, where the American delegation was located on seven separate occasions. Next, he tried the British delegation, with the same results. He was turned away from the French Foreign Office, the French Parliament, 
and the doors of every French minister and member of parliament whose addresses he had been given by his socialist associates. He had even gone to Clemenceau's house on Rue de Franklin at 9.30am when the old tiger emerged from his front door every day to greet the crowds. However, he'd received a hefty whack to the head from a policeman's baton as he had stepped forward out of the crowd. There on all fours, he had looked up as the tiger's eyes had met his, but there was no connection. Kwok knew that in the former time, many decades before Kwok had even been born, Clemenceau had vehemently opposed France's occupation of Indochina. He had even brought down a government over it, but then again, at that time, Clemenceau had stood up for the poor and for the workers. These days he crushed miners and the like, and the peoples of the colonies were disposable knives with which to gut the Germans. Kwok could see that a desire for justice no longer lived in those old eyes. Those eyes were blinkered by revenge, and the plight of Kwok's people, also under the dominion of this white-haired old man, were out of sight. After that, Kwok revised his strategy, and as he was clearing away the crumbs left by the rich and famous, he would secrete copies of his manifesto into their briefcases or jacket pockets at any opportunity. It was risky. If any of them discovered it while they were still in the dining room, he would be sacked on the spot, for as the only Vietnamese in the restaurant, there would be no one else to point the finger at. He was particularly proud when he managed to slip a manifesto inside the briefcase of Alan Dulles, whom he knew to be close to the action in the Hotel de Creon, despite his young age. This was particularly difficult as Dulles was one of the few diners who actually ever acknowledged his existence. In later life, and with a new name, Kwok would think back on this. Alan's courtesy towards him as a busboy of colour, for Alan Dulles would in later life be as oppressive and colonial towards Kwok's people as the French had ever been. In those times to come, Kwok would respect that Dulles waged the war out of a misguided patriotism and not out of racial or imperial beliefs. But that was in the future. In the here and now, Kwok had worked out that the best time to slip his manifesto into Dulles's possession was when he came to dine at the Ritz with a woman. Kwok had numerous opportunities to study Dulles's pattern of seduction, seeing as his carnal assignations seemed as frequent as his diplomatic lunches. So Kwok knew that the dessert course would be the time Dulles would be most distracted, leaning in, whispering in the ear of whichever new young lady he had brought. In two months of surreptitiously hiding manifestos in overcoats and briefcases, Kwok hadn't once had any indication that these had ever been read. Therefore, he was rather surprised when, two days after slipping his manifesto into the briefcase of Dulles, he received an invitation to meet Colonel House, right-hand man to President Wilson. So on his eighth trip to the Hotel de Crinon, rather than being shooed away, the sergeant on duty, after studying his invitation, smiled and escorted him in. Kwok was met by Alan Dulles, who led Kwok into the office of Colonel House, and then remained silently perched on a desk in the corner of the room throughout the meeting. Colonel House apologised to Kwok that it hadn't been possible to forward his document to President Wilson, as the President had left the Paris Peace Conference the previous day, having made all the decisions, and now it was down to his dutiful servants to execute them. Colonel House explained very politely to Kwok that in any case America had to view his most eloquent document as an internal French matter. French Indochina was not, and would never likely be, on the American political agenda. House did, however, wish Kwok the utmost success in his quest for a fairer deal for his people. 
House then went on to cordially ask Kwok about the time he had spent in the United States. Where had he stayed? What jobs had he done? Who had he known while he had been there? After Kwok had shaken hands with House and then on the outside steps with Dulles, he reflected that it had really been the most congenial of meetings and Kwok, who tended to be shy unless on a public platform, where all his shyness was replaced by the sense of his mission, had opened up to the man whom Kwok knew to be one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, of the men still at the Paris Peace Conference. Kwok thought to himself as he walked the streets back to his shared apartment in Montmartre, this is why America was thriving while the corrupt old world was dying. It was because of the open and inquiring minds of men like that. It was because they were a democracy, an imperfect one, as he knew from his time in America, but still a democracy. It was amazing, for instance, that House had known how influential Kwok's declaration was back in French Indochina, where it had made him, a young man anonymous in Paris, a well-known figure in the land he'd left while he was still in his teens. The next day, Kwok was visited by the French police. His house was ransacked, and when he arrived for work for his evening shift at the Hotel Ritz, he was informed that he was no longer needed. Kwok was disappointed. He had honestly believed in the sincerity of Colonel House and in the ideals held by America. He would not make that same mistake ever again. Afterward, Nguyen I Kwok kept petitioning the French government to give greater autonomy to his people and for them to rein in the brutal French colonial administration and bring to justice those individuals among the French colonial army and administration who had committed acts of barbarity and theft against his people. But his polite and well-argued appeals fell on deaf ears. He thus became further radicalised and in 1923 he moved to Moscow where he received schooling in Marxism. While in Moscow, he continued to make appeals to the League of Nations based on the American Declaration of Independence against the French government's continued unlawful occupation of his homeland. With the outbreak of World War II, Kwok decided the only course of action was war and decided that with his new approach, he needed a new name. Assuming the nom de guerre Ho Chi Minh, he who enlightens, he returned to a Vietnam occupied by the Japanese. He organised a guerrilla army that successfully threw out the Japanese in 1945 and then went on to defeat the French who returned to re-establish their control of their Indochina colonies. After their crushing defeat at Dien Bien Phu at the hands of Ho's army, the French declared they were withdrawing from North Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh was declared president of North Vietnam. The North supported insurgents in South Vietnam, which was increasingly propped up by American military assistance. Ho Chi Minh died six years before he could witness his army successfully routing the Americans from Vietnamese soil and leaving Vietnam free from outside military domination for the first time in 400 years. As the People's Army of Vietnam marched into Saigon, they sang, You are still marching with us, Uncle Ho. Conclusion. Despite being father of the nation and the unassailable figurehead of Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh was more and more isolated in his final decade of life and spent more and more time in China. His first and only wife had been Chinese, and when they were separated by war, the Chinese communists had blocked her from being reunited with the person who five years later had re-emerged as the successful revolutionary leader of Vietnam considering her an inappropriate wife for such an important figure. 
Despite trying to find her, Ho Chi Minh never again saw her. Twice more he wanted to marry, one time again to a Chinese woman, and twice he was blocked from doing so by his own Communist Party, who deemed these women beneath his dignity as the father of the nation. In his will, he stated for there not to be a mausoleum built in his memory and for his body not to be embalmed. Rather, he wanted his ashes buried in the four corners of his beloved homeland. The Communist Party ignored his dying wishes, needing to harness his popularity to their own ends. Ho Chi Minh, previously Nguyen Ai Kwok, previously Nguyen Tap Fan, born Nguyen Sin Kung, fluent in Vietnamese, Chinese, Russian, English and French, who had travelled the world working menial jobs despite being highly educated in search of finding a way to liberate his homeland, on the face of it achieved his life's ambition. But perhaps not quite in the way he would have wanted as the 20-year-old boy setting out on the steamer from his homeland in 1911, or as the 29-year-old young man politely asking the great nations in Paris to put an end to the brutal colonial oppression in his homeland. However, those great nations, of course, didn't listen, and Nguyen became radicalised and convinced that the only route to gaining independence was a war that lasted 35 years and cost millions of Vietnamese lives. Thank you for listening. Next month, our story will tell the story of Lawrence of Arabia at the Paris Peace Conference. Until then, I wish you much good health, liberty and happiness.